ACNC, uh, it's good to be with you again on our weekly podcast. Uh, we haven't had the pleasure of meeting. Uh, so glad uh, that you're taking the time to tune in for some um, some weekly spiritual formation. Uh, I hope that this this series that we're in, A Man's Search for Meaning, uh, which is a study on the book of Ecclesiastes, has been uh, really helpful for you. Uh, I think I said this last week, but uh, I know that some of the ideas are consistently similar in this book. But like I said, I, I just really think the whole Bible is there for us um, to study because that, and that God gave us all of it. Uh, and that when, when a message is repetitive or when it, when it seems to be uh, the similar, a similar message in a different light, that that just means we need to hone in all the more. And so um, I, I know at times that this is a little bit dreary content as well. Uh, but again, uh, I think it's fitting for our, for our time of this COVID-19 and the polarity of our culture and the, just the constant um, at odds. It's good to kind of, I think, think about uh, the feelings that we may be having of, is there a point to all this? And uh, what is God doing? And where is He working? And why can't I see or understand everything that's going on? And that's what Solomon's doing here in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I think it's good to kind of draw on what lessons we can learn uh, from Ecclesiastes because it's very fitting for our time. Now, um, as we dive in today, I wanted to ask you, have you ever heard the phrase, Everything I ever needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. Uh, it's an interesting idea, and we could uh, we could give lots of um, evidence of the phrase, and probably argue against it as well. But let me give you some ane- anecdotal evidence to the veracity of that statement. In 1985, the year I was born, a woman named Laura Numeroff published her first book entitled, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. (laughs) Six years later, as I was beginning kindergarten, coincidentally, I think, she published a sequel of sorts titled, If You Give a Moose a Muffin. They were smash hits, and they continue to be popular today. In fact, I read them to my kids. We have them in our book collection, and they're they're books that they choose regularly. Both, uh, Both of my two younger kids, in particular, really like these books, and we just read uh, If You Give a Moose a Muffin the other night. Um, so I want to read to you uh, uh, an excerpt from the 1991 release about a moose, a muffin, and the sequence of events that follows, because I think there's a lasting life illustration here. I think this gives evidence to the idea that we learn everything we need to know in kindergarten. So here, let me read this expert, excerpt. If you give a moose a muffin... He'll want some jam to go with it. So you'll bring out some of your mom's homemade blackberry jam. When he's finished eating the muffin, he'll want another muffin. And another muffin. And another. And when they're all gone, he'll ask you to make more. You'll have to go to the store to get some muffin mix. He'll want to go with you. When he opens the door and feels how chilly it is, 
he'll probably ask to borrow a sweater. When he puts the sweater on, he'll notice one of the buttons is loose. He'll ask for a needle and thread. He'll start sewing the button, and it will remind him of the puppets his grandmother used to make. Now that's all I'm going to read. The story goes on and on in this way where one thing leads to another, and he, he starts out wanting one thing, and then in the process of getting that thing, uh, the next something reminds him of another thing, and then it just on and on it goes. And every step that the kid takes in the book uh, shows, shows a kid trying to meet the moose's needs. Every step the kid takes to appease the moose, the moose is never satisfied. And the book ends with the moose outside noticing some blackberries. The blackberries remind him of the jelly, the jelly reminds him of the muffins, and now he wants another muffin. And that's how the book ends, implicating that the same endless cycle has started over again with the moose no more satisfied than he was at the beginning, just going through this monotonous rhythm of seasons, so to speak. So you could say that when you give a moose a muffin, he'll never be satisfied. And you could also say that basically, this book is Ecclesiastes for kids. Everything I ever needed to know, I learned in kindergarten, right? We've been studying this very adult-oriented book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes, and yet the lesson of Ecclesiastes is right here in this kid's book called If You Give a Moose a Muffin. In fact, an alternate title for Ecclesiastes could be If You Give a King a Concubine. If you give a king, if you give a king a concubine, he's gonna want another, right? And that's what uh, Solomon is is writing about, about how he got himself some toys, some women, some accomplishments, and so on. And by the end of the story, he concludes it was all meaningless because he just wanted more. Nothing under the sun satisfied. He's back at square one after doing all that. He's back at square one. So uh, everything I ever needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. If you give a moose a muffin, it's just a, just a kid's version of Ecclesiastes. We continue our, continue our study tonight, this time by di diving into Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where Solomon continues his melancholy exploration by looking at life's meaning in light of God's sovereignty. Now that, that's a big Bible word. Sovereign is an adjective that means possessing supreme or ultimate power. So Solomon's going to look at life's meaning in light of God's supreme and ultimate power. The fact that all things pass before his throne. Um, nothing happens under the sun or beyond the sun that God doesn't know about, that, that God uh, doesn't have power over. The sovereignty over humanity in this chapter leads Solomon to some pessimistic conclusions though he can't help but also see the beauty, too. Let's dig in here to chapter 3, starting at verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. 
a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. This is perhaps the most famous passage in Ecclesiastes. You might have, you, you might have heard it at um, a funeral. This, is, uh, this passage is often used to give consolation um, about sorrow in life. Because it is often understood to imply that there is a right time for things to happen. So, for example, one commentator has said, the inference of these verses is plain. If we, co-op- if we cooperate with God's timing, life will not be meaningless. Everything will be beautiful in His time, which is something that Solomon says in verse 11. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Even the most difficult experiences. That's what one commentator said. Here's the thing with that uh, interpretation. I don't think we can deduce that particular meaning if we read it within the context it's written. First of all, the very first pair of activities mentioned in this poem, the time of birth and the time of death, are almost completely beyond human control. So this isn't about humans making decisions at the right time in God's will so that everything has meaning. We, we can't even control all the things that he references in here. It's really kind of nonsensical to talk about cooperating with God in these actions to give them meaning. Second, there is no indication that Solomon has changed course from his guiding philosophy thus far. That philosophy being, everything is meaningless. In fact, verse 1 of this chapter says, this poem is about the activity under heaven. So verse 1, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Okay, and we've, we've been talking at length about this each week. Uh, Solomon keeps talking about how everything is meaningless under the sun. That which happens between the time that you're born and the time that you die. That which happens within time and space. And God is outside of time and space. So he's, while he's talking very negatively, he's talking about a specific, a specific um, idea and he's not ruling out that there is meaning out there. And similarly here, he begins that poem with that mantra, under heaven or under the sun. So to suggest that he's talking about a right way to live contextually just doesn't make sense. The tone that precedes this poem and, as you'll see in a minute, the conclusions drawn following the poem indicate Solomon is still searching for meaning, that this poem is still under uh, the umbrella of his meaningless, his meaningless philosophy. Okay? Uh, what the poem is meant to convey instead is the monotony of life and the limitations of humanity within the constraints God has imposed on them. Okay, the, Solomon has already expressed previously that there's nothing new under the sun. And so now, what he's saying is all these seemingly unique experiences, all these seasons that we go through in our lives, that, that we have within the time we're given, they're predetermined because every generation goes through this. Every person that lives goes through these things. What he's saying is there's a time for them, and they happen for everybody, and we all follow these rhythms, and therefore, all of it is monotonous. It just repeats itself over and over again. Nothing new under the sun. Actually, in Psalm chapter 90, Moses authors a similar sentiment, and you may think that I misquoted because most of the Psalms are by King David, and maybe you didn't know that some of them aren't. Well, Psalm chapter 90 is actually believed to be authored by Moses, 
But Moses in Psalm chapter 90 basically says in summary, your life is like a story that's already been told. He says, he, he says in the opening verses, he says, God is from everlasting to everlasting. And then he kind of expresses in verses to follow that people just exist within his eternal span. Now, the thing is, is everyone, everyone likes to think that they are the exception to the rule when it comes to breaking the mold and getting outside of the monotony. We, we like to think that we are original designs, that our experiences are unique to us, that nobody else can understand what we, we went through or we go, we've gone through or what we've done. We, we like to say, like, no, I really color outside the lines in life. I am not boxed in by the man. I'm not limited by the way that people normally do things. Like, I'm not, I'm not just going to college to get a job, to get a wife, to get kids, to retire. Like, I'm not going down that rat race. I color outside the lines in life. And Solomon says, nope, you might think you do, but you're just following the same rhythms and doing the same things everyone else is. He, he might agree with you that we all apply ourselves a little bit differently and that our experiences from one person to the next in our generation might look slightly different, but over time there is a clear pattern and rhythm and path to all life under the sun. And there is a common end result. The end results remain the same, generation to generation. As we said the last couple of weeks, dead is dead. And so we're all striving at these seasons, hoping to somehow leave a legacy that breaks out of the monotony. Like many people try to, quote unquote, rage against the machine. There's even a, a band called that. And so through the generations, you've had, people, you've had generations say, well, we're going to grow our hair out. We're going to be different and grow long hair. Uh, and then you've had other generations say, I'll cut a fade. I'll shave it short on the, on the side and grow it big on the top. Or I'll wear bell bottoms. I'll wear skinny jeans. I'll dodge the draft. I'll buy a skateboard and go to X Games. Stick it to the man. I'm my own person. You can't hold me down. You won't churn me out of your factory. I'm not a part of your system, right? But Solomon says, no, 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 no. Every activity under heaven has a season and rhythms. God is sovereign. He possesses supreme and ultimate power. And nothing we could do supersedes the parameters He's created. We follow the same patterns that every generation of people has, and then we die. <laughs> That's what's going through Solomon's mind as he writes these 14 lines linking together these 28 activities and events. You're born, you die, you laugh, you cry, you tear, you sow, you build, it breaks kind of poetic. It's literally poetic, but let me paraphrase what Solomon is saying using the words of Chris Farley. Lottie frickin' da! That's not in the Hebrew, but that's basically how Solomon sums it up in verse 9. What does the worker gain from this toil? So he, 
Solomon's just talked about this, these rhythms, these seasons, and then Solomon's question, his conclusion, what he draws from that is what does the worker gain from this toil? Okay, so this is not about operating in the right way and somehow God will give meaning if you do it in His will, in His way. Um, we'll explain more about, about this in a minute, but for now... What Solomon says here is life is a zero-sum game. Everything cancels each other out. You plant for a while. In other words, like you, take, you, you put down roots with your parents. You take on their values for a while. Then you uproot and you create your own values. And while you're figuring that out, you're in the season of rebellion and doing all kinds of weird stuff. And then you plant again and you put down root. You kind of settle on some things. And then... Maybe your midlife crisis comes on and you uh, comes around and you uproot again and then you plant only to die shortly thereafter. So everything kind of cancels each other out. Plant, uproot, plant, uproot, plant, uproot, plant, uproot. And basically, even our rebellion is predictable. Even our attempts at breaking out of these cycles are predictable. It's all a part of these rhythms and seasons. He, he says it's a roller coaster that just arrives back at the starting point. Weeping, then laughing, then weeping, then laughing. Mourning, then dancing. Birth, then death. And when someone dies, there's, there's another one being born. It's just a cycle that goes over and over and over again. He says there's a time for this and there's a time for that. A time for this and a time for that. And you can't do anything about it. No matter how many toys you get out of the box during playtime, they all have to go back in the box. And eventually, you go back into a box. Yikes. His point is that life is depressingly predictable, while simultaneously unpredictable because we're not in control. And ultimately, our life and our death is, in the words of Eminem, undebatable, unavoidable, unavailable. Theologian uh, Dominic Rudman explains it this way. He says, This viewpoint may be illustrated with the hypothetical case of a slave working on the estate of a large landowner. The slave is not an autonomous being in his own right, but a tool, an extension of the master's will. The actions of the slave are entirely determined by the will of this master, and he works not for himself, but for another. Well... Might the slave ask himself, what benefit do I get from all my work? And that's where Solomon has come to. He says, man, God is supreme and ultimate in his power. I'm just an extension of his plan and his purposes and his work. So what worth or meaning is there in my work? What good is there in my work? So we have another bleak opening statement, right? But here we're going to see Solomon shift gears again, just like he did last week when we looked at verses uh, 24 and 25, and we, I told you how Martin Luther said this is, this is made like the main point of the whole book, okay? And, and so Solomon is starting to introduce the silver lining that he's discovering, that, that he kind of named in the beginning, that apart from God, everything is meaningless. But that is also the hope that if everything is meaningless apart from God, we can be in God. So here we have, we have a pivot. We, we, have a, we have a shift of the gears. and It starts in verse 10. Solomon says, I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will fear him. So like Ross Geller maneuvering a heavy sofa in a tight and linear stairwell, Solomon once again implores us to pivot. Specifically, we need to pivot our perspective from mortality to eternity. Pivot our perspective from mortality to eternity. Solomon here is kind of torn between those two perspectives. On the one hand, he's saying life under the sun is monotonous, It's difficult to understand, so much so that it makes me wonder if God really is in control, if He really is sovereign after all. That's what what he says in in verse 11. He says, everything's beautiful in His time and eternities and hearts of men, but men cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He says, on the one hand, I cannot understand my life. I just feel like a mere mortal. It doesn't make any sense. It makes me wonder if God is out there at all. But on the other hand, He also says there's an inescapable feeling that there not only has to be, but there just just must be something more than that feeling about my mortality. There just must be something more than my mortality. And so he says, he has set eternity in the hearts of men. And he goes on basically to say, with eternity undeniably set in my heart, I know God must be sovereign, and a God like that will endure forever, forever, along with everything He does. That's what He says in verse uh, 14. He says, I know everything God does will endure forever. I know that nothing can be added to or taken from His work. And I have His work set in my heart. So these seasons and rhythms He's given us are actually a gift. They're a gift that lead me towards something I don't really understand. Something that makes me question everything that I'm saying is true. And yet, it makes this life not as monotonous as it may seem. These rhythms and seasons in my life, they're a part of an eternal plan. His eternal plan plan. I can't understand it, and that really frustrates me. But I cannot deny it either, which gives me a glimmer of hope. And so he says, my purpose and true meaning in life must be then to fear God. Now at this point, he's not sure how he feels about that. Uh, this, This can be confusing because some translations may say, revere God. And that is often the expression used in the Old Testament Scriptures when we read fear. However, in this passage, the Hebrew uh, that Solomon uses, he uses the word differently. And, And while the word he uses for fear does communicate reverence, in this case it also intentionally communicates a fear caused by feeling so hapless before an all-powerful being that he is scared, that he's terrified. And listen, I can say he uses this intentionally because 
Solomon is one of the main writers who talks about the fear of the Lord um, in Proverbs. He talks often about it in Proverbs, and he uses a different word there. So this is not a mistake. It's very intentional. He's, he's saying, I, as, I, as I think about my purpose, as I think about God's supreme and ultimate power, and how small I feel in all of this, and how powerless I feel in all of this, I do have an awe and reverence for Him, but really, what I have is a little bit of terror and even dread. Like, what if I mess this up? Or what if God's plan for my life isn't for me to be a part of His good purposes, but to be a part of the broken purposes? He, so he's filled with fear to be at the mercy of sovereign God. As one commentator put it, hearkening back to some of Israel's encounters with God in the wilderness and the fear that they had before them. And if you, you want to know what I'm talking about, just think about like when Moses, when they get out into the wilderness and they're at Mount Horeb and God comes down on the mountain and all the people are called to gather as an assembly before God and they don't want to go to the mountain because they're terrified of God's powerful presence. They're scared of Him. They're, they're fearful of Him. That's the kind of fear here. And as one commentator says, just like that, Solomon is realizing that God can be both awesome and awful. That's a word you don't hear to describe God. But think about it. Awesome and awful, are they have the same root word. Both stem from awe, but one, one word communicates greatness and something that inspires um, or is, is compelling, and the other communicates something terrifying that we want our, to run from. They're both the same thing. And it really de- how you see God really depends on your perspective. Um, essentially, Solomon's saying, when I realize how small I am before him, and how little control I have under the sun, it can be utterly terrifying. But there is also a big silver lining trying to break through the surface here. He, he's looking at this and he's saying, man, that this God is active among such puny beings at all gives me hope that life is a gift and eternity will prove to answer all of life's unanswered questions. And that's the key. He's saying Man, this eternity that's in my heart, I, I have to think that that will answer my questions. Even, even though I don't understand everything now, I feel small, I'm scared, I'm just, what choice do I have? Because everything else has proved meaningless, so I'm going to trust God and trust that eternity will work all of this out. That's a, that's a good starting point, okay? For all of us, it's natural to have uh, a terror or fear of God, a, a, a feeling of unworthiness, a feeling of unfairness. Like all of these things are natural human emotions as we search out to know God and to draw near to Him. Solomon is experiencing that too. But the healthy place to land is to say, well, it's not like anything else in this world is proving to be any good, so I'm going to trust Him anyway. So listen, uh, the Apostle Paul actually draws on this hope in much more vivid detail because he has the advantage of seeing the picture with Jesus in it and having seen that picture. In other words, getting a glimpse of eternity because that's what Jesus did is he brought 
heaven to earth. He gave us a glimpse of what eternity will look like. And, and He paid the price to ensure that eternity could be fulfilled so that, so that we would have a certainty of that hope. And so Paul, writing with that in Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read you about 20 verses um, because this is just a beautiful passage that really expounds on the hope that Solomon is, is placing his, his heart in. Um, verse 18, Romans 8.18 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So here, it, Paul's, Paul's talking talking about the present suffering. Solomon's suffering is, I see no purpose or meaning in this life apart from God. And God is sovereign and overall, and what does He need with me? But, it would seem that that is, my, that is my one true purpose, is to know Him and fear Him and revere Him and serve Him. And in the end, I'll find that all will be made new in Him. And that's exactly what this says. Creation waits in eager expectation for that to be revealed. Uh, Paul goes on, he says, We know that the whole creation has been growing as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? This is the good news for Solomon. He's hoping for something he doesn't have. He's tried everything else. He, he hasn't found it. This is the good news. He's hoping for what he doesn't have. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And that's what Solomon's saying, his glimmer, his silver lining is. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Now here's, here's, here's the promise in light of Jesus. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. This is what Solomon is getting at when he says that what God does endures forever and nothing can take away from it, nothing can add to it. And Paul says, we know in Jesus that that is a good purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, and again, this is a vantage point that Paul has, Solomon doesn't, but gave his son up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who could bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies who is he that tries to condemn? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Even so, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That 
is the eternity that Solomon is speaking of. He can only just barely cling to hope because he does not have the vantage point of Jesus. It would have been pretty much imperceivable to him at that time, but Solomon is ever so cautiously looking forward to such a possibility. He can't imagine exactly what it looks like, but he's just saying, man, if eternity is my in my heart, there must be a way that I am going to be able to get into eternity. There must be God must be making a way for all of this to all of these meaningless seasons and all this meaningless work and all this meaningless pleasure to work back together for for my good. And so as Paul declares in Romans, so Solomon also says, we find meaning in life when we put trust in the God of eternity to weave all the experiences, all the seasons of life, predictable or not, together for our good. We find meaning in life when we put trust in the God of eternity to weave all the seasons of life, predictable or not, together for our good. When you're able to look at life and take the good with the bad, offering it all back to God in reverence, in fear, even, in, in, even if it's a terror kind of fear, then you can relax. Then you can eat and drink and be merry. As Solomon reiterates in verse 13, he says, he says that everyone may eat, drink, and find satisfaction in his toil. This is the gift of God. We can experience that when we can take the good with the bad and recognize that, that eternity will work all these things out. Solomon, when he's, he's talking about eating and drinking and being merry, he's not talking about living recklessly. He's talking about enjoying life as a gift from God. There's a, a study book on Ecclesiastes entitled A Life Well Lived, and it puts it this way. Everyone is going to die. As you're reading this book right now, the clock is ticking. The 24-hour virus is waiting on you. There are germs on your teeth that will cause cavities. And Some of you are like, oh, gross. You try not to think about that. One day you'll have to have a root canal. And all of these things are bad, and they're coming. So today, while everything's okay, go get a double dip of Rocky Road ice cream and a waffle clone. Take some friends with you. Lick your ice cream slowly and just enjoy being together. Call an old friend you haven't spoken to in six months and get caught up. Rent a movie you've always wanted to see and curl up on the sofa with some hot popcorn. Enjoy today, trust God, have fun. And I love that. Enjoy today, trust God, have fun. Jesus actually gives some similar advice, and I think I've referenced this already uh, in this series. I know I go back to it often. It's kind of a life verse for me. But in Matthew chapter 6, he says, Hey, you don't see the birds worrying, nor do you see the flowers worrying. They don't worry about a thing. But God takes care of them, and He'll take care of you even more so, so, fear Him above all things and everything else will be taken care of. That's Matthew 6, 19-33. When you have a relationship with God, don't worry. Just be happy in Him. God has given us the seasons and rhythms of life to learn that primary lesson. That when you have a relationship with God, so apart from God, you can do nothing. But when you have a relationship with God, you don't have to worry. You can just be happy in Him. But here's the catch, and this is how we're going to close. We only have the one life to learn that lesson. We only have the one life to learn that lesson. Look at verse 15. Solomon says, Whatever is has already been 
and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. Remember that phrase, God will call the past to, to account. So here's, here's the final point. Your life can be an opportunity or a liability. Your life under the sun can be an opportunity or a liability. Um, I'd encourage you to look this up and read it for yourself, but I'll just kind of paraphrase a parable that Jesus tells. Uh, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. And in the parable, um, a master tells three of his ser- three servants um, that he's going to go away. And he's, Jesus, Jesus explains that this master has given the servants charge over things that belong to their master. And essentially, he's given them gifts. And so the master goes away, and while he's away, two of the servants take the gifts they're given and multiply them. They just they take what they're given. They, remember, they know that it's the master's. They know that it all belongs to him. They know that that his, that they're just extensions of his will. But they take what they've what he's given them and they enjoy it. They multiply it. The sir, the third servant simply buried the gift given. He just buried it to keep it safe because he was afraid of the master. He thought about the master's sovereignty and he was afraid. When the master returned. He called them to give account. He brought them to him and asked them what they did with the gifts he gave them. And to the ones who multiplied their gifts, he rewarded them with even more. Meanwhile, the third servant explained, he said, oh, master, I was so afraid of your sovereignty. I mean, you're in charge of everything and you can add to or take away from whatever you want. You you are scattering seed and fields that don't belong to you and you're reaping harvests and fields that don't, you're just, everything is an extension of you and I didn't want to mess that up. I didn't want to I didn't want to um, get in the way of your plan. I was afraid. I didn't think that maybe I really had um, I could really do any good with it and I just I couldn't bring myself to enjoy it because I was afraid and enjoying it I'd mess it up and the master is very angry. He scolds the servant for wasting what was given to him and has him thrown out of the house. Alright, so this is a parable of two perspectives. One servant feared and despaired over his mortality. One servant feared and despaired over his mortality. He, he feared, uh, he could not enjoy the, the gifts given to him because he just all he could think about is, man, God is sovereign and what's the point? This all leads to death in the end. He basically stays in the attitude of Solomon uh, in Ecclesiastes, instead of finding the silver lining. Meanwhile, the other two understood that though they were nothing more than an extension of their master, they could still choose to find joy in the things the master gave them. They could still bear fruit with it, and that that the master had given them these gifts, and that there was pleasure to be found in them. And so subsequently, their lives bore much fruit, and that alone brought its rewards. I mean, if that was all they got, it was a pretty good life to be able to take the master's generous gifts and use them for their own enjoyment and their own purpose and their own meaning but there was even more reward yet see the master returned and what was most rewarding in the end was that they served the master faithfully with what they'd been given and so the master saw their faithfulness and gave back to them and multiplied their reward beyond anything they could have imagined or gained 
on their own. He gave them something that was beyond them. Likewise, Solomon says, we can have one of these two perspectives. He says, listen, what he's unpacked in this chapter is there is merit to feeling rather pessimistic about the way things are. Yes, the seasons are the same. There's nothing new under the sun. You live, you die. Someone else takes what you've got. There's reason. Solomon's the wisest person who ever lived. He's able to think through all that. He says, I can see where the pessimism comes from. I'm feeling rather pessimistic myself. The muffin, the jelly, the sweater, the puppets, and everything else will never be enough. But still, Solomon also says, as C.S. Lewis would later say, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Solomon says eternity is set in my heart and I have not found eternal purpose in this world so there must be something more. And now he's saying in closing that that world is the place where God will call the past to account. The past being the life that we lived under the sun. Life under the sun is meaningless apart from God but we are accountable for it to God and if we live it well then it has purpose. Our, our life under the sun has purpose and meaning. So our lives can either be an opportunity or a liability to our account. And what Solomon says in the previous verse is that the best way to finish with a life well lived is to fear God. Sure, sometimes it's terrifying. And that's a fine place to start. But if you will turn, if you will see everything as from God, and trust that He will work it all back together for good, you'll learn to revere and trust Him, and, and, and you'll begin to see all of life as a gift. All of life as a gift. And you'll see it as an opportunity to offer it back to Him. You'll recognize He's the one who's placed eternity in your heart, and He will surely weave all of life's seasons together for your good. So let me just close by asking you, are you living life as an opportunity? Or are you leading a life that will be a liability when God calls you to account? We will give an account for the past. We will stand before the Master and have to tell Him what we've done with the gifts He's given us. And friends, are, are you enjoying the gifts He's given you? Or are you squandering them in fear and terror? What will you say to the Master? when you stand in eternity. I pray that your trust in His sovereignty will produce in you a trust of His love and goodness in your life so that when you give your account, you will be able to offer to Him a heart of faithful opportunity fit for eternity. Heavenly Father, I just pray in Jesus' name that anyone who may be listening to this would hear these words and not despair, but instead take heart that though God is sovereign, that He is ultimate, and and uh, that He is ultimate power, that God that they would see that God has chosen us, and that He has given us Jesus. He's not spared a single part of Himself. He's poured all of Himself out to us, and hope in eternity. That with that knowledge, that each one listening would hope in eternity. That even if we can't understand it all, if we can't fathom all that God is doing, and we, don't, we can't make sense of His hand in our world, 
that it would be enough to just trust that He will work all things back together for good in the end. Pray in Jesus' name that none would go into eternity with a life that's a liability to the account we must give. But that that all who are listening now would take this opportunity to turn their lives into an eternal opportunity. An opportunity to stand before you faithful and offer a fully faithful heart fit for eternity. Pray these things in Jesus' name and may God bless you this week. Amen.